Hey, listeners, as you know, we just finished our Visions of the Future series, giving those of us with younger kids a little taste of what the future might be like as they enter adulthood. And we learned so much and we loved it so much. And we thought this would be the perfect time to revisit one of our favorite episodes, Series 8, Episode 4, a storyteller's episode. And it was called Listen Close, Stories from Autistic Adults. So if you've listened before, please give it another listen. They have such great insight to give. And if this is your first time, this is an amazing episode. I can't wait for you to hear. Hello and welcome to Table for Five with no reservations. Take a seat at the table for a fresh, sweet, salty, tart, and pleasantly bitter conversation. Hello, thank you for taking a seat at the table. This is episode four, our storytellers episode of our series, Hear Me Roar. Seat at the table is Tabitha. Hello. Jen. Hello. Jamie. Hi. Rachel. Hey, everybody. And I am Kim McIsaac. Tonight, we'll have a few autistic adults come and tell their stories. We love to get their perspective and hear their experiences. It's so helpful for their voices to be heard to help moms like us and spread awareness all around. Danielle Orleans. Dear Table of Five No Reservations, thank you for asking about my story. Do you have your seat belts on? LOL. I'd just like to say that even though I don't always show it, I'm very much aware of what's going on around me. Please know I'm always trying to communicate and relate to others in my life. I was lucky to find ways that helped me communicate. The right support is a key element to feel safe and confident. No matter what you do, listen to your heart and your autistic loved one. Finding caring people saves the day anytime. Having my parents on my team saved my life. They did not take no for an answer, put my needs first, and literally listened to my screams. The right support is a key element to feeling safe and confident. Please know that I work hard every day. Controlling my body and organizing my thoughts is sometimes exhausting. Even my stomach suffers. I want to be my best. It's a lot of pressure sometimes. Learning has helped me focus and brings new hope. Learning about everything is what makes me feel alive and respected. Please keep teaching all people. Learning is a right, not a privilege. Please teach me the same way you teach any person my age and try to be creative, patient, and respectful of my sometimes different needs. I am so appreciative of the wonderful people that do this. I can tell they are happy too. This is a bumpy road that needs safety and compassion. That's why we all need seatbelts. LOL. It's so worth getting to the destination of hope, knowledge, and fun. U. T. I. S. T. I. C. Autistic. S. M. A. R. T. Smart. A. N. D. And. F. U. N. N. Y. Funny. G. I. R. L. S. Girls. L. I. K. E. Like. 
M E me. I love when people open their heart to listen to autistic, smart, and funny girls like me. Danielle is 19 years old. She has autism and Crohn's disease and has recently decided to make her story public in hopes of helping others. She started a YouTube channel last year called Reaching Danielle's Voice. She has some verbal language, but communicates more vividly through typing, which became a significant avenue for her communication when she was 16 years old. She loves making art, spending time out in nature, listening to music, and learning all subjects. She has a Facebook page, and her mom posts about her on Instagram as LPOrleans70. Tim Miller. I've always felt a little bit different, even as a child. Of course, I had some minimal knowledge of autism, mostly depictions, media, and a few people I knew who had it, like one of my coworkers, who was pretty open about having it. But I never really considered that I might have it. I just kind of thought my brain worked differently from everyone else's. I mean, I've always had trouble relating to others. And in fact, I was held back in the first grade, most likely due to underdeveloped cultural skills. And I think at that time, I think me and my parents just kind of chalked it up to general shyness and awkwardness, which... So I went through my childhood, not really giving any thought to the fact my brain seemed to work a little bit different than my peers. I mean, I thought I was just a kid who had trouble making friends, whose pastime was swinging a stick around in my backyard and telling stories to myself, and who just enjoyed a fair amount of structure in his day. So autism kind of continued in my periphery, something maybe I suspected was there but never really thought about, despite continued trouble fitting in and a few depressive episodes, all up until my late 20s when I first started seriously going to therapy. I'd gone to therapy for about a year or so in my early 20s after a little bit of a depressive period, but I kind of dropped off after my therapist retired, and it took me a few years to find a new therapist and go back. As I discussed my issues with my new therapist, they mentioned perhaps I had ADHD, something I hadn't really considered, but stuck with me even after I stopped going to this therapist because they too retired. I think I should probably stop going to older ladies for therapy. So I stopped going to therapy for a late for a little bit, but the idea of ADHD kind of gnawed at my brain for a year or so, compounding with just finding out for general research that ADHD and autism can be interconnected and finally considering that maybe I had some high-functioning autism. Eventually, I brought these concerns up with my doctor and they recommended me to Montana Neurophysiological Associates, a group which I would highly recommend to anybody who's curious about autism, ADHD, and other disorders. So I went there at the age of 30, I got tested for ADHD at Montana Neurophysiological Associates. And while I was there, I also brought up the fact I suspected I might have some high-functioning autism and maybe they could test for that too, which they managed to. And after the test, I got my results back and it turns out I do have ADHD and high-functioning autism. Things that I had considered, but were now actually confirmed. For me, it was kind of a, a little bit of a both a, a relief and a little bit troubling relief as one step forward to figuring out myself and my own how my own mind works, which I think is an ongoing struggle for everyone, not even people without autism. But it's also a little bit stressful and troubling, and thing now to deal with this mental obstacle that had always kind of been there but was now in more plain view and how I can properly manage me. I mean I realize now it's always kind of been a part of me but I'm trying not to let it define me. I don't blame my parents or anyone else for not recognizing it 
within me as a kid or trying to get me tested sooner. I mean, truth is, they probably just really, really consider it like me. It's just something that maybe I didn't exhibit all the signs. Maybe I didn't exhibit quite the way that they would expect. But, I don't know, all I can do now is just move on with the knowledge I currently have and try to try to work on managing it. I do think my comedy helps, so I'm a stand comedian. And not long after my diagnosis, I addressed it in one of my sets with a joke about how I thought I hated people because I'm just kind of a curmudgeon, but it turns out I dislike people because I'm bad at reading social cues. And I think my sense of humor and creativity has been a good asset in kind of dealing with the diagnosis and coming to terms with it because I think it allows me to make light of it and put in a digestible chunk, not just for me, but also my audience and if I can help someone else recognize it and diagnose autism in themselves or somehow make it more relatable, just in general, I'm glad to do it. I mean, I'm still learning a lot about it. and I'm even back in therapy with a person that I hope won't retire anytime soon to help me manage it. I, don't know, I think it will take me a while to figure it all out and come to final terms with it, but I think sometimes the longest pass leads to the best destination. Tim Miller is a stand-up comedian, occasional actor, and writer from Missoula, Montana. He is the current co-host of the podcast, It's the End of the Show as We Know It, with his friend Maddie Holland and former host of the web series Laugh Tub, which he hopes to refill sometime soon. You can find him and his various projects at timlmillercomedy.com. Margie Cates. I don't think I can ever see the big picture. That's a confusing thing to say to neurotypicals. I see scaffolding. I see negative space. I name the concepts. I measure the exact beginning and end. Look up when and where and why it was built. And only then will I ever be comfortable calling it a house. Every moment, object, and word has a story. They have roots that go way down. It took me years to learn people are only comfortable if you call things a house. Years to learn which lies you're supposed to tell and which will get you crucified. I couldn't keep a secret as a child. I also lied constantly. Big, dumb lies. It got to the point where even when I knew I was lying, I couldn't stop myself. Or my mother was constantly grilling me on whether I was being honest. The truth is, sometimes I didn't know. When you are masking and you try very hard to look honest, no one believes you. When you're very upset and you tell the truth, people think you are lying. What I'm trying to say is to be autistic is to have your own truth routinely invalidated. Little things like people telling you you're fine, it's not that bad, toughen up, communicate that my sensory hellscape isn't real, <laughs> And if we want to survive, we better stop freaking out and learn how to endure. What happens when you teach a child their job is to endure, to hide their reaction and police their desires to make other people comfortable, is trauma. We learn to dissociate and depersonalize because our reality, our sense of the world is dismissed and we are punished. Enter abuse. You know who's the easiest person to gaslight? Someone who doesn't trust their body to begin with. Someone who believes in seeing the best in people, or someone who is unbearably lonely. Someone who is autistic. 
If people had supported my reality, my needs, and uh, my expression of them, if the adults in my life had given me the space to process them, instead of telling me to toughen up, I would have been a way less easy target. I'm not saying abuse wouldn't have happened. Please, I'm a born people pleaser, and I'm in the music industry, but I would have had better tools to deal with the vultures. I often hear people talk about their fondest childhood memory. They think of some fuzzy watercolor memory with family or a t-ball game. They're thinking about being around other people. My fondest childhood memory is being three, maybe four, laying on the carpet, listening to opera for hours on end. I made designs on the carpet with my fingers. I like to put my ear right against the speaker and feel my body fill with the music. Sometimes I'd get up and act out the scenes, or what I had imagined the stories to be. I'd sing along, I'd hide behind the curtains, I'd stand on the coffee table, rewinding the tape to play Queen of the Night aria over and over again. Normal, right? Cute, right? Regular kid stuff. Except my fondest memory is of who I was before I met the world. Who I am when no one's around. Because in kindergarten, everything changed. In kindergarten, I couldn't zip up my coat. Other kids could tie their shoes. And during transitions, the sound of chairs and the rustles of coats and the voices kept me glued to my seat. I couldn't bear to join that noisy swarm of bodies. I was constantly checking to see if I was doing the right thing. I couldn't understand the teachers. I watched Kelsey, a pretty girl with thick braids, for cues. Kelsey put her notebook on her desk. I put mine down in the exact same way. Kelsey put her hands on her desk. So did I. Kelsey laughed. So did I. Did I speak to Kelsey? Never. At home, I cried to my dad. I collapsed in the doorway, my backpack still in hand, my coat on the stairs, and I'd ask him, How do you know who you are? Why are people mean to me? How can I be more like Kelsey? And what does it mean when a teacher says I'm full of beans? Struggled with the uh, metaphors for a while. Third grade, I couldn't read a clock, but I knew the sounds of the classroom and when it was time to go. So one day I heard the familiar scraping of chairs and backpacks being zipped up, papers being smashed into desks, and I gathered up my stuff and I went home. It was 11.30 a.m. The other kids were going to lunch. I thought the day was over. This is the biggest sign here that someone should have taken me out of school, told me I had dyscalculia, like right there and then. I got lost walking home. I had to stop and knock on strangers' doors to ask the way. I remember the long walks to the lunchroom and my horror as we descend down. The smells got stronger, the sounds got louder, and I would hold my breath for as long as I could. The cafeteria was bright with white tiles and horrible, buzzy, long lights. I never ate. I watched boys do terrible things to their milk. Maybe I'd have three cookies, but I'd leave as quickly as possible for recess. It is at this point when I started faking sick after lunch. I'd go to the nurse's office and I'd claim all kinds of ailments. I'm nauseous. I can't see, my, see very well. My tummy hurts. Sometimes they'd let me call home. 
Once, I pretended to lose my hearing and shivered violently for hours while the nurse ignored me. Teachers wanted to hold me back. Teachers wanted me to skip a grade. How can a girl read an entire book on Einstein's theory of relativity, give a presentation to our class about it, and not be able to tie her shoes? I'm not even going to go into the social part. Of course I was lonely. Striving to be liked and accepted. Kids making fun of me and shunning me. Every once in a while I'd be adopted by a girl. And then they'd steal my diary and read it aloud at lunch and quote it back at me for years. I took every day as an opportunity to make them like me. I tried out different greetings on my target friend. Top of the morning. Hey, buddy. What's up? I was sure that if there was just a code I hadn't picked up, if I could just say the right words, they'd be nice to me. It didn't work. I disappointed my teachers. Women in the 90s really wanted little girls to be brave, smart, brilliant little tomboys. I disappointed these women deeply because people always thought I was dumb and I let them. I was really bad at kickball. I was really bad at math. I was really bad at throwing and catching. My eight-year-old brain was the antithesis of second wave feminism. I always needed extra help. You think you explained it already? Think again. Here comes nine-year-old Margie wanting to know exactly what you mean by sometimes, most of the time, and occasionally. People told me to toughen up and try to figure it out, while an entire classroom watched me struggle and cry. Whether it was my, zipping my coat, finishing my math problems, copying my answers down for the fifth time because the teacher couldn't read my handwriting. Everyone kept telling me I needed to be tough. Tough like Kelsey. Tough like my sisters. Tough meant neurotypical. Later in my 30s, my dad came around to understanding my autism. He said, you were such a tough kid, you know. I could tell you to do something and you would just ignore me. And I'd shame you and you'd stare into space. And then I'd yell at you and you'd do it. Do you know if I yelled at your sisters, they cried, but you would only listen if I yelled at you. I realize now I was overstimulated and shut down. Possibly hyperfixated. I wasn't tough. My nervous system was using the tools it had. I grew up telling myself that everyone else is fine, so I should be too. I grew up thinking it was my job to endure, that my body was a lying little bitch and my sensitivities could be overcome. Now as an adult with ADHD, autism, dyscalculia, dyspraxia, I do not drive. Oh, and CPTSD. I'm relearning how to be. How to unmask. How to stim. I still analyze every conversation I have afterward. Hours after a party, I ask myself, did I miss something? Did I let anyone down? Was that offensive? I still collapse after going grocery shopping. I still can't go to Target without headphones and a plan. The last 30 years of my life have been consumed with hiding who I am, arranging my life around when and where I can collapse. How much energy before a migraine sets in? 
People think they're hiring this fun, talented girl, but really they're getting me. I don't understand tone. I can't pick up your dance steps. And I can't hear you when the lights are on. And I have to work really hard not to let them down. I am relearning some things. I don't need to see people I care about every day. I don't need to talk to the person I'm dating every day, or even every other day. I don't want to go to a parade ever again. I actually hate parades. I thought everyone else was pretending to have fun like me. I don't need to endure anything ever again. No more vinaigrette on salad dressing. No more bread with flour on the outside. Touching it makes my soul leave my body. No more loud music. No more smiling with a stomach ache. No more ab workouts. No more underwire bras. <laughs> no more laughing at jokes that aren't funny. I'm trying to get back to the girl who put her ear against the speaker and build worlds out of sound. Music was this glorious friend, color and texture, not a trigger. All I needed was air and light and my hands. Margie Cade sings on her bike, in airports, and on stages. Sometimes she sings R&B soul, sometimes she sings wedding stuff, sometimes she sings to children. You should hear the songs she's written. They're mostly about being alive or in love and holding it all in at once. She's been studying being a vessel of sound for like ever. She likes to make you feel things. Her Instagram is at katesmargie007, but she's not very good at it. Every day she thinks about getting a TikTok and then she lays back down. She's also a stand-up comedian. Sarah Edmonds. So I guess I'm just here to kind of tell my story and help uh, other parents. So I'm from Montana. Uh, my parents moved here when I was like three years old. I have gone to school here my whole life and the public school systems here are just not meant for people with a different kind of learning style. Um, they just really aren't. Um, I've had an IEP for as long as I can remember, which is kind of crazy. And also, I mean, on top of that, I wasn't, I have a dyslexic um, ADD. I just have a really hard time learning uh, the traditional way. I also am quite a slow reader and yeah, I've had an IEP my entire life. I was never actually diagnosed um, ADD until probably about a year ago um, when I started therapy. <laughs> and the fact that nobody caught that was kind of incredible to me, um, especially given that my mother has it and so does my brother. So it's a very inheritable trait and no one thought to see if I had it as well. So I didn't even get the proper help that I needed because I wasn't diagnosed with the proper mental divergent ways of learning. And IEPs in this in this state are just IEPs are just the worst, the worst. I hated my IEP. So if you don't know what an IEP is or you don't have a child with an IEP, it's literally when the child and parent slash parents, depending. Um with me it was just my dad because he had custody of us, so it wasn't really my mom was not included in those. And it was pretty much the worst. Um, they say you can bring a friend and whatever, but everyone sits down and talks with you about how you're learning and how you're feeling, and, and it's not comfortable at all. Um, gosh, if I had it my way, I probably would have just had one person 
like at each school, like I have one person in elementary school and then one person in middle school and then one person in high school that does the IEP and to make sure that we were learning correctly or the way that we needed to. I ended up dropping out my sophomore year, like the middle of my sophomore year, because I was not doing well at all. I mean, in the state, they just stick you in a room and (laughs) they stick you in a room with someone who says that they can teach you um, and they don't. And basically, it's just a room for you to do your homework in and maybe get some help that you need on occasion. Um, I ended up dropping out with a 1.5 GPA. I went to Trapper Creek Job Corps and I ended up graduating Trapper Creek Job Corps with a 4.0 because they taught me differently. They, they listened and they figured out how I learned and accommodated that. And I think that that was a really important thing that happened. I think if you have a child with a neurodivergent brain, I think that it is so important that you pay attention to their learning and how they're learning in their education and make sure that they know that someone is there, that they have the ability to speak and to and to guide their own education. I never really felt that way, and that wasn't any fault of my parents or or anything. Um, I think, I mean, I know my dad did the best that he could, but I just never really felt comfortable even saying that I had say over my own ed- education. Um, also, I do apologize. I am a <laughs> new mom and um, I'm currently pumping. So if you can hear my pump in the background, I'm really sorry about that. Um, but so that's my story. And, and I guess my advice would be if you have a child with a neurodivergent brain, just make sure that they're getting what they need from school. And and school may be different now. I'm 27. Um, I haven't been in school since I was 15. So it's it's probably, I would hope it's quite a bit different now. And I would hope that it has ways to help students with um, any type of learning disability. But just communicate with your kids and let them know that they have a safe place and that they're in charge of their own education. And maybe homeschooling is the best for them. Maybe maybe they don't feel like they have somewhere to go. I would also talk to them a lot if IEPs are still a thing the way that they used to be and make sure that they're comfortable during those because they really, those really suck. They're the worst. Um, anyway, thank you for listening and hopefully this is um, helpful to some and, and educational to others. Sarah Edmonds is 27 years old from Missoula, Montana, and she's a new mom to a beautiful baby. We're so thankful for everybody who came on tonight to share their experiences with us. It is so wonderful to have the insight, and we love for everyone to have a voice to be able to share with everybody. I have to say, I just, everyone's story is so emotional to listen to for me, but when I first heard Danielle's story, I just wept. I know that it is quite common to have a girl on the spectrum at the table, but statistically it's like one in four girls are diagnosed. And so I was particularly moved by her because it isn't often that I've heard a first person girl, you know, speak in the way that she did. And it just got me right in my soul. Mm -hmm. My daughter is autistic. She's seven. She is really verbal, but not super expressive. And 
I spent so much time wondering and decoding and determining and trying to figure and all of the stuff that to hear someone express themselves in that way, just, I mean, I'm not kidding you, took my breath. Also, we know a little more about Danielle's background and her mom's a writer. That's how we know her mom, who's an amazing writer. Linda, she's the best. But they didn't know that she would be able to express herself this way. And so just knowing that background as listening to her story I mean, it's hard not to cry. Her parents know what's going on in her mind and they know like how she feels. And I don't, it's just everyone's stories. I'm just so grateful to any autistic individual and especially these adults who can help guide us as parents. Because Mm -hmm. I've learned so much about my son through these individuals and my son may not be exactly like them, but sometimes they'll say things. I'm like, oh, I think that's what he means when he does this or why my son stems so much or why he does this so that they can tell us and they've led the way in so many different ways for me on this journey. And I love it. Yeah. I think, you know, anytime that you get to hear or see, you know, because not all adults on the spectrum can communicate verbally, but you can still see our kids and all of the people who are out there and sharing their story, no matter what it looks like, you know, Like maybe my son will be able to have a job. Maybe my, you know, they'll drive or go to college or maybe they'll live with us forever. There's all different kind of avenues of what, where this life could take them. And learning from autistic adults is like the most important because we don't know what it feels like to be in our kids' shoes. We just don't. And for me, like Kim and I are opposites as far as our daughters in the fact that we're new to this. My family is new to this journey, but she's nonverbal like Kim's daughter is nonverbal. And so we relate in that way that figuring out what they need, figuring out daily things is like a mystery sometimes and can be highly painful for both of us in the same way, in the same way, because we don't want our children to not be able to voice how they're feeling on the inside or even remotely say how they're feeling on the inside, you know? And so hearing Danielle's beautiful words in a way that uh, it's just an uncommon way to communicate. And it's beautiful in the way that she's able to express herself and from the past when she didn't have a way to express herself, you know, it's so fascinating to me looking at my baby daughter in that Can way. Can you imagine you know? Linda uploading that like as the mom? Just beautiful. I too am touched by Danielle's story. Having a daughter, like Tabitha just said, who's nonverbal. My daughter's 25. Um, she still has a lot of trouble expressing herself. Although words have come, she still can't necessarily communicate when something upsets her or bothers her. Um, she can't tell me the why behind things. So to see somebody, you know, who also doesn't have speech who's nonverbal you know for the most part be able to articulate their thoughts and their feelings um you know it's just inspiring and you know we work hard every day with Alyssa to try to you know help her along as much as we can to hopefully you know get to that point or even close to that point you know so it's just it's just a beautiful thing and I have spoken to Danielle's mother on numerous occasions and you know that's it came out of nowhere, not out of nowhere. They did a Pacific therapy for it, but it was a long time coming. It took, I I think she was like 14 or 16 when this started happening. So, you know, it took, it took 
a while to get there. And, you know, I think it just gives us inspiration. And I agree, like Jamie said, it's just nice having this guide with these autistic adults. I mean, there's been many a times that I come along something and I'm like, oh, that's why she does that. Yeah. Like, I know there's epiphanies just... in each one of these pieces, isn't there? Yeah. You I know, so it is, you know, we do appreciate it so much, you know. So thank you guys for that. Yeah, Linda's been incredible. Uh, Danielle's mom has been incredibly helpful with me um, with some stuff with Kaya, and she's just a wealth of knowledge. And just and she's a sweetheart. So nice. Oh, yeah. an incredible person. So I, I just adore her. <laughs> Um, I really enjoyed, uh, obviously Danielle, but I really enjoyed listening to Tim. Me too. I found it fascinating that he was diagnosed at 30. Yeah. 30 and being a guy, you know, I just, and he, it's, it's a cute story when you hear it, but I just thought it was fascinating. Like what he had to say at 30 years old. To yeah. Honest. And with Sarah's, I really like how she talked about the IEP process. I know for myself, I grew up on an IEP. And I agree with a lot of things she said. It's hard as a child, even if you're a teenager sitting in a room amongst like all those adults staring at you. And I think from the mom's perspective, I kind of get like, oh, you want all these people helping and all this stuff. But like, it's really intimidating as a child. I really liked her perspective. I had an IEP and I feel like, you know, there's something to the help. And I think I even, you know, needed, knew that I needed that as a young person, but I can remember the observation that happens before IEP and knowing that the people with the clipboard board are sitting and observing why and how I can interact with these people. Like I could feel it, you know, mm-hmm. I yeah. think it- people talking about you as if you're not there. Uh, that's something I very much remember. <laughs> well, I was just going to say as a parent, I know what it's like to sit through an IEP meeting, but to hear it from an individual that the IEP yeah. meeting applicable to uh, was very different to listen to you guys know my feelings of Nixon's last met evaluation and I had so much guilt about that experience about him listening and hearing and you know it was going so fast I couldn't stop it and I learned from that first one that I will never have that be his experience again just for this purpose so it's really fascinating to hear someone talk about actually sitting there being the child talked about, you know. And again, hearing it from her was very different. And Tabitha, you've said it a million times. These are our children. They are little human beings and they hear everything. They may not be able yeah. to verbalize it. Even my daughter, who's considered verbal, cannot articulate those feelings of what she's hearing. So it's interesting to hear it on that perspective. Loved it. I think, you know, we mentioned it about Danielle's story early on, but it is so fantastic to hear from all these ladies. Yeah, three I, ladies. I'm just so um, grateful to add to the narrative. And Tim, I got to tell you, if, if, if I had been in my days in Montana while I was listening, I would have found you, man. I would have found him. <laughs> but I, I really, I, I feel um, incredible to lift these ladies' voices. Yes, Tim. And I think, um, so what I wanted to say about Margie, Margie, when I interviewed her on my page, literally changed my perspective of the way that I view my children in how they view the world, because she explained it so beautifully with touch and feel and sense and being, and how she examines the world is, I think, very in tune with the way that my kids view the world, you know? 
And so it's given me an opportunity to understand, to slow down, to watch what's happening, to not press so much on them in the space that is hard for them, you know, and let them be who they are and not try and make them into something that they're not, you know, it was beautiful. I loved her story so much. It made me cry. I think uh, all these stories, (laughs) there were tears. Ladies, we should have named this one, Hear Me Roar and Pass the Tissue. (laughs) Roar and Wail. I'm fascinating that he was diagnosed at 30. I just found that I just, I don't know why I got hung up on that one. I just found his story. So, and I laughed through it with the, um, therapist. The, the yeah. fascinating 30 years old and you're diagnosed. So his entire life, he went through this feeling. Yeah. It's just, it's just wild to me. And in Danielle's pieces that just struck a late night mom chord with me as I was listening to them for the 54th time, Danielle refers to her parents as her fighters. And mm-hmm. I know yeah, I cried. I started to cry right about then that moment. And, and then um, he discussed and discussed how he doesn't blame his parents. And I think that there's so much shame in our world in terms of being parents in, in like the, the, the weight of all the choices that we have to make guilt is shame and shame is hard. And I'm like freed by his words. He knows that they were trying the best they could. Yeah, that struck me too in his story for sure. I was like, and I think all of them kind of touched on that about their parents, each one of them. And it's so nice for us. You know, our kids see us trying too. (laughs) We see them trying and our kids see us trying. That's just with Danielle, it's further to the point that she may not be able to verbally express and tell Linda how fabulous she is, but she knows, she hears it, she sees it, she understands it. And I think that's the biggest misconception for our kids. They may not be able to speak at certain points in their life, maybe never speak fully verbally, but they understand. Yeah. They feel it and they understand it. Yeah, that's, I was sobbing with that with Danielle. So all of the adults that share with us, we're so grateful for you, uh, you know, coming on our podcast and we hope to have other people submit stories because we really like you are, like everyone has said, you're our guide to our children in a way you know little pieces of you are similar to little pieces of our kids everyone always says you met one autistic person you've met one autistic person but we can learn so much from your experiences in a way that you know we can't grasp ourselves it's magic for you to share with us you've always said oh you know I'm I'm so surprised people like reading about my daughter, because she's older. I love reading about your daughter because she's older, Amen. Yeah. you know, so you've walked, you know, the path we haven't walked yet. So I look to you, you know, about things. We're still walking. <laughs> <laughs> and Sometimes a- we're trudging, but you're doing it. <laughs> like you said, Tabs, pieces of these stories are like pieces of our kids. I was explaining that sort of idea to my dad because he knows autism or fetal alcohol syndrome or mental health stuff by way of Seely. And so I was describing to him that you could almost make up the bits in a kaleidoscope, like the markers on the spectrum are all these bits in the kaleidoscope. And mm-hmm. when it's turned a certain way to code Seely, it's the same parts as maybe are in Nixon. Um, mm-hmm. But you're going to see this blue blip that's common with Kaya. And you're going to see this 
you know, dinosaur piece that's common with Nixon and you're going to see a run your off that's common with Jess or the, you know what I mean? Like there's just parts of everyone that are so similar and so common. And yet the constellation is different. And Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating every single time we speak about a topic because it's so comforting. If you have something to say, send it over to us. We would love to hear it. We are always accepting storyteller episodes. So contact us. We'd love to hear it. (laughs) We'd love to hear it. And then tell five of your friends, please. Yeah, and everyone else would love to hear it. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening and joining us. Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of the Table for Five No Reservations podcast. Join us next Monday for more. And while you wait, make sure to check out our content on Facebook and Instagram. If you are enjoying the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate and review us wherever you listen. To contact us, you can email us at tableforfivepodcasts at gmail.com. We can't wait to sit with you again. See you next time.